So this is one of those dangers of preaching through uh, a book of the Bible from beginning to end, is that you, you come into a passage that begins with words, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Did you notice how Father Mike kind of scurried away and into the, into the congregation? After the Eucharist, he just kind of, I think he didn't want to get caught with any strays. He didn't want to be collateral damage, get, catch any shrapnel this morning. Well, when we read passages such as 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7, with our 21st century glasses, some of us instantly react. We hear the phrase, wives, be subject to your husbands, and we begin to bristle a little bit. What's that mean, be subject to your husbands? Hang on a second, Peter. You spend seven, six verses talking to wives, but only one talking to husbands. How is that right? Right? Am I, am I right, or am I alone in that? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. But you know what? Our, our, our reaction... One, our reaction to, to uh, uh, the Apostle Peter's Holy Spirit-inspired statements, our reaction to these things um, is, is, quite frankly, a bit of a misunderstanding, and it betrays a misunderstanding, and it betrays just how deeply embedded we are in the 21st century as opposed to the 1st century. Now, Peter here addresses wives, and he addresses husbands all as a part of a, of a wider passage in the heart of his letter that is dealing with how believers in Jesus are called to live honorable lives in public. And as such, it's, it's good for us, just for a moment, to take a step back before we step into this passage. As we take a step back, we, we need to recognize the, the use of Peter's words, likewise, likewise, because that draws our attention back to what has been stated previously. So, likewise, wives draws us back to uh, verse cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. You're probably thinking, how is that any better? All right. But that servants be subject to your masters brings us back to chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so these commands that Peter gives, they are commands that Peter gives in chapter 2, verse 18, servants be subject, that he gives in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise wives be subject, that he gives in chapter 3, verse 7, likewise husbands live with your wives. Those are all rooted in chapter 2, verse 17, Peter's commands, love, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We would do well to remember That Peter is writing in a first century context. And that first century context had a lot to do, the the cultural context was very concerned with upholding societal stability or cultural order. And foreign religions, foreign people were always judged according to how they upheld the cultural stability or the cultural order. And so in the the Greco-Roman world, it was expected society to be well-ordered. They needed to respect the lines of authority. The emperor should be honored. The governors he appoints should be honored. As we saw a little bit last week, the the Greco-Roman philosophers believed that the cultural order and stability really had its foundation in the family's 
order and stability. And so they had to deal with, in their household codes, how children were to submit to their parents, how wives were to relate to husbands, and how servants were to relate to masters. And so in this part portion of, of Peter's first letter, he really is dealing with all of those questions that might be asked about Christianity as to how they uphold the cultural stability or the societal order. And notice, every step along the way, Peter has actually upheld the institutions which were considered to be foundational to society's order and stability. For example, Peter calls upon Christians to submit to every ruling authority, even the bad ones. He's called upon servants to be subject to their masters, even the harsh ones. And in our passage today, he calls upon Christian wives to be subject to their husbands, even the non-believing ones. And so Peter does this for what appears to be very pragmatic reasons. Harmonious relationships rather than rebellious ones, are good for people and society. Harmonious relationships, rather than rebellious ones, are what God desires for His people. And so, in obedience to God, then, His people submit to those in authority over them. But we cannot miss the fact of just how completely Peter subverts the very lines of authority he upholds. Notice what he said. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone, but fear God. There's only one to be feared. That is God. Notice what he says. Servants, be subject to your masters. Why? Because you fear God, not the master. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Why? Because you fear God, not your husband. We cannot miss the fact that Christian submission to authority, whether we're talking about submission to the emperor or submission to the master or submission to the husband, is not out of the fear of that authority, but out of the awe-filled faith held in God. And that is revolutionary, that is countercultural, and this is a political act as it subverts the politics of power, it subverts the politics of authority at its very core. And Peter, in his Holy Spirit-inspired brilliance, subverts the system, works for cultural change, not by attacking the system itself or for advocating for the overhaul of the system, but by calling those within it to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I mean by this is that Christians, as members of God's holy nation, his elect exiles, owe their fundamental allegiance to God as their identity is found in God and found in what God has done, in what God is doing, and in what God promises to do because of and through Jesus Christ. Yes, a person may be a slave without power with no authority, with very little in the way of what we would call rights, but at a deeper level, at a deeper reality, at God's level of reality, even the slave is a royal priest. 
That which Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that applies to a servant just as it does a master. That applies to a wife just as it does a husband. And so, yes, a wife may be, a woman may be a wife with little more authority than a slave, but in Christ, she is a co-heir, an equal recipient of equal grace with her believing husband. And the simple fact that Peter takes the time in his letter to directly address slaves and wives, directly addressing them as free moral agents who can choose for themselves whom to worship and how to behave, Peter raises the level of dignity for those within this first century aspect of society. What Peter is writing is very dangerous because he's treating slaves as equals with their master in a very real sense. He's treating wives as equal with their husband in a very real sense. You see, in the first century culture of Peter's day, slaves, wives, and children were not free moral agents. A wife couldn't even choose her own friends. Plutarch is a a Greek philosopher. He said this, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. I've had some friends my wife didn't like too much. (laughs) Ray's laughing the hardest because he knows it's true. Plutarch, a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. You know, Plutarch is, is sort of reflective of the Greco-Roman philosophy of, of how slaves and wives are to submit to their masters and their husbands, accept their friends, accept their way of living, accept their gods, and don't break out of that. You see what Peter's doing here? Peter, in his holy inspired brilliance, has, has challenged the social, cultural expectations, and he has affirmed the servant and the wife's right her free moral agency to believe in Jesus, even if her husband did not. And so if a wife responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ with faith, then she is a member of God's holy nation and called to live in obedience to God. If a husband responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ with faith, then he is a member of God's holy nation and called to live in obedience to God. Essentially, what we see in these seven verses is, that, is the call, the command by Peter, the apostle, for wives and husbands to live out the gospel in their marriage. In all of this, Peter is calling upon believers in Jesus to live honorable lives in public and for husbands and wives to live out the gospel as they live together. And he has to call for this. He has to call for the right ordering of husbands and wives of the marital relationship because it's been broken. Within the framework of Scripture, remember what happens in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In Genesis chapter 2, God created man and woman. He instituted the covenant of marriage. There was no sin, and so the relationship of the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, was harmonious. God made uh, each man and woman in his own image with equal value, equal worth, and equal dignity. God chose and gave each man and woman specific roles to play within his covenant of marriage, and God 
so ordained it that each man and woman make up what the other lacks so that together there is one whole person. And apart, there's lack. And by the way, this is just one side note or one reason why we continue to uphold the biblical perspective that marriage is between one biological and genetic man and one biological and genetic woman because one biological genetic man cannot make a whole with another biological and genetic man. There's a requirement to make up that which lacks in one another so that there is wholeness. That's an aside. Forgive me for my aside. Right, so chapter 2 ends with the covenant of marriage brought together Adam and Eve, fulfilling where they lacked. Remember what God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he lacked something. And so he made Eve the help meet, the helper to come along and fulfill. And then came the events of Genesis chapter 3. What we see in the events of Genesis chapter 3 is, is basically the, the fracturing of the harmonious relationship of marriage, the very reason why Peter has to write this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Adam forfeited, he gave up his God-given responsibility to keep and protect the garden. Adam didn't do what God told him to do, which was protect and keep the garden, including his wife. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam stood idly by as he watched the serpent deceive his wife and he watched his wife eat of the fruit. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says Eve turned and gave the fruit to her husband, to Adam. You don't have to go very far to turn. I read that to mean Adam stood there the entire time and didn't say a word. He blew it. But secondly, on the other side of that is Eve's own sin in this. Eve seized authority that was not hers to seize. Adam, or God didn't say to Eve, protect and keep. He said it to Adam. So Eve seized opportunity to speak for Adam, to speak for God with the serpent. And as a result of that sin, this harmonious coexistence, this first marriage that was in peace and perfection was shattered. John Piper puts it this way, when sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage because it twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination in some men and lazy indifference in others. And it twisted woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative obsequiousness in some women and brazen insubordination in others. Sin didn't create headship and submission. It ruined them and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. In Jesus, because of Jesus' cross, because of Jesus' resurrection, marriage can be and is restored because sin and the consequences of sin are undone. And Peter has to write this to say this is how God's men and women who are married are to live. God's people are to live the gospel in all aspects of their lives, beginning with their marriages. And so he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, drawing us back to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The commands to fear God and, and honor everyone are what being expounded upon here. A, a wife's fear, her off-filled faith of God is the motivating factor for her submission to her husband. It's out of obedience to God 
that she does this, but what does it mean to submit? Well, it doesn't look like what Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. She seized authority that was not hers to seize. Submission, by the way, how do I say it? Well, I'll just put it bluntly. Sometimes we men think that submission of our wives means that I'm supposed to be barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen doing what I say when I say it, right? Amen. <laughs> That's not good. That was, a too, that was too quick, Chris. Too quick on the amen. But sometimes what we think of submission is that I get to kick back in my recliner and say, hey, bring me a bologna sandwich and a beer. The game's on. Well, there, there has been a time in my life where, where my wife was barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. That was because we were having babies, she loves to bake, and she doesn't really like to wear shoes when she's in the house. But it wasn't because I required it. That's not submission. That's subjugation. That's an abuse of power and authority. When Peter talks about being subject, when Paul talks about wives, submit to your husbands, what we're talking about is not an exercise of power by the husband over the wife. Rather, it is a perspective, a point of view of the wife to the husband where, maybe this is overly simplified, but where the welfare, the good, the interest of the other is considered first. Submission is like an incredibly talented musician who's part of an orchestra allowing the conductor to direct. An incredibly talented musician has value, worth, and dignity, but they have a role to play. They recognize the only way they can truly fulfill that role is in submission to the director who has the overall headship. Submission looks like uh, Eve's role with Adam in Genesis chapter 2 prior to the fall, where she completed. Peter tells the wives to whom he is writing to, to submit to their husbands. And notice that he doesn't say submit to every man you ever encounter. Ladies, notice that. He says submit to your own husbands. I think it's important to recognize that. This call to submission is in an effort of evangelism so that these non-believing husbands, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. We can never understand, we can never underestimate or overestimate the, the powerful nature of the gospel witness of a faithful wife and mother. Never can miss that. Actions speak louder than words, and Peter calls upon wives to live lives of the gospel testimony. And and he doesn't say how it's specifically to be done. He lays out sort of a a, a general principle, and then he leaves it up to the husbands and the wives to, to figure it out, to work it out together. And part of the gospel witness of a Christian wife, it's really interesting to me that Peter is talking about live in a particular way way so as to win even your unbelieving husband. And then he says this, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Part of the gospel witness of a Christian wife or a Christian woman is is found as they find their true source of beauty. Peter doesn't forbid women from braiding their hair, wearing nice clothes or jewelry. He tells them not to find their adorning there. He says that's not where your beauty comes from. 
True beauty does not come from any of these things, fancy hair, fancy clothes, uh, get your nails did, but it comes from the hidden person. It comes from the gentle and quiet spirit, the place where God abides and where God does his work. And so we ought never, ladies, hear me on this, especially you young ladies in junior high and high school, we ought never allow Instagram, Hollywood, Sports Illustrated, Victoria's Secret, or any other cultural institution or person tell you differently. Beauty comes from the place where God abides and God does his transformation, transformational work. So Peter's call is for wives to place a higher degree of importance on who they are on the inside than what they look like on the outside. And by extension, Peter's call is for husbands to not objectify a wife. In all of this, from verse 1 to 4, Peter gives them a new hero, Sarah, the the wife of Abraham. Because Sarah submitted to her husband, even when he was a knucklehead. Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abraham said to Sarah, hey, we're going into this king's land, pretend you're my sister because I don't want him to kill me to take you as his wife. That's about knuckleheadery, right? He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He doesn't honor, protect, and keep. Again, he does it in chapter 20 of Genesis. But Sarah trusted that God would provide, protect, and guard even in the face of her husband's knuckleheadery. Now, <clears throat> I know we've, we've gone on and on here about, about wives, and, and now we turn to husbands, and I'm pretty sure that while we were reading this, while Lee was reading this for us this morning, husbands were saying, yeah, 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 and then we got to verse 7, and wives went, yeah, wait a minute, that's it? <laughs> Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. If I can paraphrase, husbands, don't be jerks. Your wife is a co-heir of grace given. Your wife has equal value, dignity, and honor. Don't trample on her. Again, we see this word likewise because, because they fear God. Christian husbands are called to pay attention to their wives. They're called to hear their wives. They're called to respect their wives. They're called to honor their wives. And again, this is not something required in the culture of Rome. It is something that is required in the culture of God's holy nation. Honor and respect your wives. Peter gives three reasons why husbands are to do this. First, husbands show honor to their wives as, quote, the weaker vessel. Now, This is why Mike scurried out into the congregation. This is precisely the moment that collateral damage will be incurred. Peter's not making a statement of value. He's not making a statement of judgment, of worth. Peter's referring to two things as he refers to wives as the weaker vessel. First, he's referring to physical strength. He's referring, secondly, to the status of a wife or a woman within the culture. She was weaker because she had no real authority. So Peter says, honor your wives, protect your wives because they are vulnerable. In a real sense, Peter is saying, don't do what Adam did in Genesis chapter 3. Don't stand idly by 
as someone attempts to seduce your wife into sin or to delude your wife's thinking or to lead your wife astray. Don't stand by with your hands in your pockets thinking you have nothing to do. You have been given a job. Honor your wife. Protect her. Second, husbands show honor to their wives because they are heirs of God's grace. If they believe in Jesus, then the wives of these husbands have received the same grace in the same quantity. They are saved just like them. They are born again and have an inheritance kept in heaven for them. What we read in 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, about blessed be the, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that God keeps. That applies to husbands and wives. So honor your wife. And third, let's not skip over this. It's unpleasant, but let's not skip it. Third, Husbands are to show honor to their wives so that their prayers may be heard. Catch this. Peter says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, how you treat your wife affects how God hears your prayers. Let's not skip that. I'm going to leave that just for a second. Peter's call in 1 Peter chapter 3 is for Christian husbands and wives to live the gospel within their marriage in obedience to the Lord as public proclamation of Jesus' gospel. It's a restoration through Jesus of what God intended for the relationship of husband and wife, the relationship of marriage between one man and one woman made in the image of God and of equal value and worth, completing one another as they fulfill that which God gave them to do. It's revolutionary to live together as husband and wife in the way God desires it to be done. It was revolutionary. It is revolutionary because it subverts the cultural norm and fights against sin. It, it subverted the cultural norm and fought it against and fought fighted. That's good. And fought against sin in the first century, and it does now. While our culture and our context is different than that of Peter's. The principles remain. Live in obedience to the God you fear. Live the gospel in your relationships, especially your marital relationship. Wives, submit and live evangelistically. Find beauty in the inner hidden places. Husbands, honor, respect, and protect your wife. Live the gospel honorably among those of this world so that God may be glorified. And I've said this to you this morning with fear and trembling. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy and gracious God, we do praise you and give you thanks for marriage. We praise you and give you thanks for men and women made in your image. We pray, Lord, that, that there would be among us marriages that proclaim the gospel. We pray that Jesus be the center of them, the center of us. We pray that you'd be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.